Good morning, church. My name is Savannah Shadi, and I'm a covenant partner here at FPC, um, and I have the pleasure of reading scripture this morning. Um, today we are continuing our study in 1 Corinthians with a challenging pas- passage about denying ourselves for the sake of serving others. Um, and our scripture today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-3. through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Thank you, Savannah. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's great to see you all this morning. Let's come together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that today you have brought us once again into your house. We thank you that once again we may, we may come under your word, and we ask you now to speak to us, for your servants are listening. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. So let me ask you, how many of you all uh, saw, saw what was going on in the news this morning and came in here this morning with just after the breaking news and the headlines, came in here with the burning question, what are we going to do with food sacrificed to idols? <laughs> this, is, this is like the top of your list of things you wanted to hear me talk about today. This is the thing that brought you here this morning. You're concerned about what you do with food sacrificed to idols. Can you eat it? Can you not? Come on. Is this, am I the only one who watched the news this morning? Okay, you're, right now you're thinking, okay, that's a really interesting headline, Bob, but what do we do about food sacrifice to idols? How many of you all were worried about this morning? that this morning? Okay, thank you. Sandy, more. <laughs> that's, you know, when, when, when Sodom and Gomorrah fall, Sandy's going to be the one to walk out. Um, no, I mean, seriously, this is one of those topics that, that people, people read it and they say, why, why does this have anything to do with us today? Well, I want to I tell you that, that this, this particular topic, this passage, even though it may seem obscure, even though it may seem irrelevant to us today, this issue is actually very important for us to consider because it becomes a foundation for a lot of other issues, particularly the way that we influence other people as Christians. Now, as we have said many times before, 1 Corinthians is a letter written to new Christians who were still trying to figure out what it meant and what it means to be a Christian, what it means to believe and live as Christians in a non-Christian world. Now, so they're asking questions like, okay, well, I'm, I'm supposed to be living a new life, but what does that mean? What is acceptable? What is not acceptable? What's allowable? What is forbidden? What does it mean to be, you've all heard these phrases, in the world, but not of the world? Has anybody ever had to kind of wrestle with that the idea of what it means to be in the world as opposed to of the world? Well, these are two things that, you know, this is something that we all wrestle with, even, even as 21st century Christians. And one of the issues troubling the first century church of Corinth was the issue of food. Specifically, 
What is it appropriate to eat? And is it appropriate to eat food sacrificed to idols? Again, I can tell you, I've got you right in the palm of my hand right now. I can just tell people like, okay, I know he's going somewhere with this, right? Let's, let's go back historically for just a second. Let's set up some context. Corinth was a pagan city with hundreds of temples, hundreds of statues erected to gods and goddesses from all over the world. Any hour of the day, a person could walk through the streets of Corinth and witness animals being sacrificed to idols or maybe baskets or bushels of produce being offered to these pagan gods. And sometimes eating meat from that sacrifice or eating food from that sacrifice was even part of the ritual or the worship of that pagan god. So the idea was that whenever, whenever a worshiper ate the meat of that animal, and I hate to say this, sometimes even humans, but whenever the worshiper ate the meat of that particular sacrifice, the idea was that you were consuming some of its strength, you were consuming some of its power or spirit, and it was just a, it was just a sort of a, a consumption of something else to, to, get, to grab the, path, the power or essence or soul of that animal. But there were also other more practical dimensions to it as well. To it as well. Often, once the lamb or once the children, I don't know what that is. Obviously, the Lord, uh, the Satan, this message today. Just use the handheld. Oh man, this is this makes me nervous. So I feel I need to I feel like I need to become a presbycostal up here now. Um, often, however, where was I? Oh yeah, lamb or chicken. Yeah, once the lamb or chicken or ox had served its ritual function, its meat was sold in the marketplace for food. And often, I want you to consider this: often the money made from that sale went to support the cultic functions of the temple. So, in other words, when you are buying food, when you're buying meat from the temple, you're putting money into the coffers of the temple of that particular god. Now, I mean, I want you to understand how this works. It's not so foreign to us today. The temples back then were like butcher shops. And if you were shopping in the marketplace, you would be hard-pressed to buy any meat that had not been sacrificed in a pagan temple earlier that day. So if you want like a contemporary example of that, consider, for example, our good friend Carter Ray and his shop, Wyatrix. Okay, Carter gives 100% of the proceeds from Wyatrix to this church. Isn't that right? No, maybe not. Okay. But what he did want me to say is that as his sales go up, so do the offerings of the church. Okay, <laughs> that's right. There we go. Thank you. No, but, but for real, I mean, the, the idea was back then, that's where you got your meat. And I'm, I get a little distracted now. I'm starting to think about poppers and, and really good steaks and stuff like that. So, so please, for the, for the sake of being the brunt of my joke, please shop at Whitrix this week. It's that good. That's your new slogan right there. Okay. But the idea was that if you were supporting, if you were buying meat in the marketplace, you might very well be supporting that temple. And to confuse matters further, the pagan temples also served an important social function by providing meeting rooms and banqueting halls for all kinds of gatherings, from weddings to birthdays to club meetings. So if you were in the Rotary Club of Corinth, chances are you met in a pagan temple. Or if your niece got married, that's where she would have her wedding, and then in the she would have the reception in the fellowship hall of that pagan temple. And what would happen if you 
RSVP'd that you couldn't come to your niece's wedding, your pagan niece's wedding, because she was a pagan and you didn't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Ultimately, somebody would get insulted. People's feelings would be hurt. Families would be disrupted. And you might be pushed to the side. It would be considered a great insult to turn down that invitation or not to eat what was set before you. So here's the problem. May a Christian eat food sacrificed to idols? Or does she have to abstain? Does he have to abstain? Especially if it you know, cuts off the source of meat or if it begins to alienate your friends, neighbors, and, and community. On the one hand, the apostles in Jerusalem had ruled, they declared that Christians may not eat food sacrificed to idols. Look at Acts chapter 15, verses 28 and 29. The Jerusalem council said this, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. So among the few restrictions that that the new church laid upon new Gentile pagan believers was the idea that you may not eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, but that's, that's the word coming from Jerusalem. The Corinthians, these Greek Christians, they saw things differently. The Corinthians wanted to know, okay, why can't we eat food sacrificed to idols? They pushed back and they argued that an idol has no real existence and therefore there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. In other words, they argued, since idols are not real gods, nor do they represent real gods, they pose absolutely no threat to the body or to the spirit. Therefore, a cow or a sheep or a chicken is sacrificed on the altar of some false god. That meat is neither blessed nor cursed nor changed in any way. So why not eat it? What's the big deal? What's the problem here? I mean, after all, an idol is just a statue. A banquet hall in a temple is just a room and meat is just meat. Why should we give up these things just because it makes those Bible thumpers back in Jerusalem uncomfortable. What's the problem? Well, the problem is actually identified a little bit later in the passage in verse 7. Paul writes this, In spite of what you know, in spite of what you believe, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. The problem is that even though you're right, even though you're correct, you are theologically on point, not everyone gets this. Not everyone understands that idols are powerless. I mean, you know this, sure, but not everyone understands this. I mean, you, you get it, but a lot of people are desperate and confused. We've got to remember this, that, that false religion, like culture, 
is not just a house where you can open the door and simply leave. Culture, false religion, is a spider web. It is sticky, and you get tangled up in it. It's a trap from which you escape only with difficulty if, if it's not impossible to do so. The point of it is, is that it is designed not simply to hold you, but to trap, to trap you and imprison you until you are consumed, just like a spider web. The Gentiles and the pagans that the church was trying to reach had been tangled in this web of paganism and superstition and witchcraft their whole lives. Their culture had been trapped in it for centuries. Now, I know and you know people who just have been able to at some point just walk away from a habit or walk away from a problem. I mean, we all know people who said, you know what? I decided one day just to quit smoking and like that, it was over. I decided to quit drinking and it was like that. Or I quit gambling, you know, and I just snapped my fingers and it was done. Never had the desire to do it again. That's awesome. I wish that was more often the case. But there's some things that people just don't get away from. Some people can't just walk away from that addiction or habit or culture or false religion. For some, it's harder to break free. Some people can give up that, that bad habit with a snap. But to others, getting out is brutal and painful and costly, and it takes time. And so the question is, what do the pagans think when they see you eating food sacrificed to idols? What do they think? You know that eating food sacrificed to idols means nothing, but they just see you going along with the culture. You may know that idols have no power, but the lost people around you, they don't understand that. They're not yet convinced because they see you coming in and out of the temple, eating the sacrifices and playing the worldly game. And the issue, like so many others, is just causing confusion. Instead of seeing you leave the lies of the world, they see you playing both sides of the street. While we are telling them, get out, they see us just keep dipping our foot back in. Because, well, we know that we, it's, no, it's not really dangerous, and, and after all, I don't want to upset everybody around me. And so Paul's answer is simple and humble and powerful. He concedes to the Corinthians that you are theologically and factually correct. Idols have no power. But it's not about the food. It's about the people around you. It's not about what you have to give up. It's about why you give it up at all. In other words, it's not just about our freedom, it's about love. 
Paul's response to the Corinthian argument was not an appeal to the law or to doctrine. It was a response that appealed to love. Paul quotes some of them. He even says, some people say quite rightly that idols have no actual existence, that there's nothing to them. Strictly speaking, then, nothing happened to the meat when it was offered up to an idol. It's just like any other meat. I know that, and you know that. But some people don't understand that. What if someone who is still struggling with these issues sees you? Someone who looks up to you, going into the temple or banquet hall, and gets confused or discouraged or worse? What if he sees you and thinks that idol worship is okay? And so by your attitude, this weak person is distracted or destroyed. Christ gave up his life for that person. Aren't you willing to give up dinner for him? And thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you then are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food makes you, excuse me, if food makes your brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let me read that again. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul says, it's not about food. It's about people, and it's about love. He says, food will not commend us to God. What we eat, what we don't eat, that God doesn't care about that. We're no worse off if we do or we don't eat it. But then he says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Not about food. It's about your brother. It's not about food. It's about your sister. It's not about food. It's about your child. It's about that person there. Now, let's, let's break something down really quickly. Who are the weak? Oh, man, we hate that word. We hate that word. When we hear the word weak, we think, oh, well, he's talking about the weak-willed, the cowardly, the craven, the undisciplined, the soft, the puny, the unfaithful, you know, the people who aren't as strong and faithful as us. We hear that word and we feel contempt either for the weakness that we see in others or that weakness that we hide and abhor in ourselves. But what if we replaced those understanding of the word weak with a different understanding? For example, what if we replaced it with the word young? People are weak because they're young. Look around us. These children, these beautiful children around us. What if they're scared? What if they're broken? What if they're wounded? What if they're just ignorant? What if they have lived in this culture so long that they have been lied to and fed so much propaganda by the poets and pundits of our culture that they can't tell up from down, right from wrong, light from darkness anymore? That's a pretty weak position to be in. How might that change our view? 
And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this is not going to be the apostle's last word on this subject. In fact, he has a lot more to say about it, and we'll return to this discussion in chapter 10. But Paul's point is that even though we are not required to give up meat for theological or superstitious or supernatural reasons, there may be times when we must make sacrifices for the sake of love. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ has set us free from sin. That's true. He died the death that we deserve to die so that we could live the life that we were made to live. But as people set free by Jesus Christ, we, we should be asking ourselves not just, what am I now free to do because it has no power over me, but rather, what am I willing to give up for the sake of love? What am I willing to give up so that my brother will not stumble? Who, what am I willing to give up for someone else's sake? And most importantly, who am I putting First, You see, one of the most important lessons that we can learn as followers of Jesus Christ is this. It's not all about you. Yes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. But what about love? It's not about my rights or about my knowledge. It's about what's best for you. How can I do what's best for you and most honoring to God? which begs this question. Do I have an adult attitude of entitlement or an attitude of love? In other words, I shouldn't let anybody else's weakness or confusion or, or, uh, or anything else compromise what I should be allowed to do. I shouldn't let anybody else's stuff cramp, uh, cramp my rights. It's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, you know what? Sometimes we have to give up our rights for the sake of love. Paul wrote, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but seek the good of his neighbor. And for the sake of others, Paul asks us to consider if there's anything that we are doing that might mislead or confuse someone who is just learning or who is struggling with faith. With faith in Jesus Christ. So in other words, what's your meat? What is your meat? Christians have debated literally for centuries about alcohol and tobacco and politics and ethics. But rather than get involved in that never-ending debate, Paul says, ask yourself this, could your participation in this activity make another person stumble in his or her faith? A neighbor, a child, your younger brother or sister, if they saw what you were doing, would you want that person to imitate you? You know, maybe it's not illegal. Maybe it's not immoral. And you may not even consider it a threat or a big deal. But would you want your child or your little brother or sister talking like you or doing what you do? Would you rather be a source of temptation or inspiration? for someone who is struggling with an addiction or struggling in a relationship. Are my rights more important than the collateral damage that I may cause? So when we ask, what's the problem? Paul challenges us to think about our priorities. What am I putting first? 
my rights and my habits, my comforts and my ambitions, my relationships, or the needs of my weaker brother. You know, one of our biggest blind spots as people who grew up in a predominantly Judeo-Christian Western culture is that we often expect everybody to act like followers of Jesus. We expect them to know what we know and believe what we believe, even the people who don't know Jesus or believe in him. We expect outsiders to act like insiders and secular people to act like Christians, expecting people who think we are crazy to trust us and to give up their familiar ways and bet their lives on Jesus. But why should they be willing to change their lives for him if they don't see us as willing to change our lives for him? You know, they're not going to believe that Jesus Christ can make a difference in their lives until they see that he's made a difference in ours. And they're not going to believe that they should give up their old ways unless they see us as willing to give up our old ways. Now to those Jews who became Christians, the apostles say, you have to let down your guard. You have to let down your guard to the outsiders and take down some of your fences, open your table, open your home, open your heart, so that the Gentiles will know that they are welcome in God's covenant family. And to those who those pagans who became Christians, he says this, you have to turn away from your false gods and your superstitions and your lies and your idols of your culture and from the assumptions and business of usual of your culture for the sake of people who are still trapped and lost in that spider web so that they will know that there is a way out. We're not here just to show them the way of Jesus. We're here also to show them the love of Jesus. And they are not going to follow him in his way until they trust his love, until they see it in us. So let's, let's bring this down. Let's make this really practical for a second. Because believe it or not, what we thought was irrelevant as we were walking in this morning is actually critically relevant to us. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. Frequently in premarital or marital counseling, I will say to the couple, I want you to tell me one thing about your fiancé or your spouse that that you think, excuse me, I want you to tell, you, tell me one thing about yourself, tell me one thing about yourself that you think drives your fiancé or your spouse crazy. Think about that for a second. What is one thing that you do that drives your fiancé or your spouse crazy? Okay? Got that? Got something in your mind? I'm not asking you to look at the person and tell them. Okay? Okay? And I'm not asking you to answer that for your spouse. Okay? But now I want you to ask this, why would I not give that up? If I know it drives you crazy, if I know it terrifies you, if I know that it makes our relationship uncomfortable, why would I not give that up? Short of faith in Jesus Christ, I can't think of anything that deserves that kind of devotion. The point of the exercise is to get the couple to ask, what or who is the most important thing in my life? Is it this habit or this relationship? This affiliation or this relationship? This lifestyle or this relationship? You know, you're telling them, or you should be telling them, you are more important to me than that work meeting. You are more important to me 
than Facebook or Instagram. You are more important to me than binge watching my TV shows. You're more important to me than my hobbies or my routine or my comfort or my social status. You are more important to me than my political power or affiliations. You are more important to me than my money. You are more important to me than alcohol or drugs or gambling or cigarettes or pornography. You are more important to me than that affair that you don't even know about. What's the meat? What's the meat here? What are you willing to not only give, but to give up for the sake of love? So that your fiance, your spouse, your friend will never stumble. Why does it matter? It matters because Jesus gave up everything for us. And this issue reminds us that we cannot outgive God. And just when we think that God is asking too much or expecting too much of us, we have to remember that Jesus, not, Jesus has not asked us to give up anything that he was not willing to give up himself, that he was not willing to give up first. Jesus gave up everything for us. He gave up everything for you. Philippians 2.6 says this, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, that is his rights as God, a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, humbling himself even to the point of death on the cross. Now, Jesus had a choice. He could either exploit his position as son of God or empty himself for our sakes. And Jesus said, Jesus decided to empty himself. Why? Because to him, you are more important than his eternal power and privilege. You are more important than his comfort. You are more important than his safety. You are more important even than his life or heaven. You are are more important than that. So what are you willing to sacrifice for the sake of showing God's love? Now, there's an old saying that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's not just about how much you know. It's not just about the doctrine or the information or the rightness of your position. Have you ever heard me use the expression theological porcupine? Yeah, theological porcupine is somebody who has all the correct, all the good, sharp theological points, but nobody wants to get near them because it'll hurt. Nobody wants to get close to Jesus because they're scared it'll hurt them. We don't want to be theological porcupines. As Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You may be absolutely correct theologically and wrong missionally because the right answer without love is the wrong answer for the Christian. Paul will say later in this letter, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have knowledge, prophetic powers and under, uh, if I have knowledge and prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Truth and love are never at odds. 
But sometimes the way we express the truth needs to be considered. Sometimes the way we approach others in love needs to be considered in a new way. Paul reminds us to speak the truth in love. But don't let your freedom or your knowledge short-circuit your duty under the Great Commission. Remember, it's not just about being right and it's not just about you. I know that there are a lot of people here today who are, who are maybe wrestling with some meat issue in their lives. And maybe they are distracted. Maybe you don't know what God is calling you to. And, and we're going to have, in just a minute, as the band comes up to play, we're going to have some folks at, at both ends of the hall today who are there to pray with you, who are there to help you wrestle with some of this, and who are, who are willing and, and eager to know that God is working in your life. And so as the band comes up, I want you to consider how, how God may be moving you, not simply to adjust your attitude from one of entitlement to love, but also how to understand more deeply His great love for you. Because the truth is, the only reason He asks us to make these sacrifices for others is because He made these sacrifices for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this time today. And as we consider not only our freedom, but the love that you've set before us, help us to understand how you are calling us to a new and perfect way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.